BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 10th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. This episode is also sponsored by Harry's Razors, a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by at long last making a high-quality shaving experience eminently affordable. It only costs $15 for a shaving set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped to your door with the possibility of a custom engraving option to put your initials right on the razor. And in fact, today a Harry's shaving set is less than that because we have a special offer for Inquiring Minds listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiringminds, you can save $5 off your first purchase. So if you ask my mom, my brother, or my husband what my office looks like, they'll tell you that it looks like chaos. And I like to think it's organized chaos, but it definitely puts me into the category of the absent-minded professor. You know, the person who still has piles of old manuscripts on the floor and pens that don't work and so on. And I know I should be more organized, and I always have a day set aside to organize things, but it tends to get pushed back just far enough in the future to never actually get done. But I've just been reading Dan Levitin's latest book, The Organized Mind, and I think I now just might take the plunge sooner rather than later, because he makes some pretty good arguments. You know, he actually talks about how organizing your mind is one way to make yourself happier, more successful. And of course, we all know these things, but he puts it into the neuroscience language that I understand. So Daniel Levitin is an award-winning scientist, musician, and author, and also a record producer. In fact, he first dropped out of college to join a rock band. Um, But then he went back and got his PhD in psychology, and then a postdoc, and so on. And now he's the James McGill Professor of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Music at McGill University. 
He's best known for his book, This Is Your Brain on Music, a bestseller, and The World in Six Songs, also a bestseller. And his latest book, The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload, led us to interview him for Inquiring Minds. So in one part of the interview, we actually talked about what's called decision fatigue. The fact that in the information age especially, we have to make tiny, tiny decisions all the time, and they actually really tire us out. So here's what he had to say. Neurons are living cells with a metabolism, and they need glucose in order to function. Glucose is the fuel of the brain, just like gasoline is the fuel of your car. Each time you make a decision, even a tiny little one, like whether to drink from this glass or this glass, or use a red pen or a blue pen, uh, you're depleting a little bit of glucose. Um, and that's, you're competing effectively for limited neural resources with really important decisions, like um, should I put my savings into the stock market or into bonds? Uh, do I have enough to retire? Uh, is it time to put um, uh, is it time to put the, our aged pet uh, to sleep? These are very important decisions, and uh, we we have to realize that those take up the, as the, the little decisions take up as many neural resources as the big ones. So the, the solution there is to do the big ones earlier in the morning and save the little ones for the end of the day. So, Chris, what do you think? Gosh, after hearing points like that made, I I don't know. Is this too fatalistic? I feel kind of doomed. I feel like I cannot control how my brain is interacting with information all around me. And I'm sort of like a candle that's sort of slowly burning itself down and out. <laughs> I don't know. Is that too, is that too negative? How are we supposed to feel when we hear this? You know, I think I think the important thing is that we're actually noticing this, right? And we actually are starting to understand why at the end of the day, we seem to feel so tired, and it's so hard for us to sort of disengage and check out and so on. Um, and he talks a lot about both in the interview and in, in the book about this, this feature of resting your brain, disengaging and daydreaming. And I think that's something that we don't think about often enough. It's seen as something negative. Um, and to some extent, you know, mind wandering can be a negative thing if you do it too often. But I also think that there's really a place for it. And so I think that at least the step forward is that we're acknowledging that this is what's going on and, you know, looking at solutions to try to fix it. Okay. I feel like slightly better. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some science in the news. And of course, for the last few weeks, one of the big uh, topics in the news has been the infectious disease Ebola. So to help us separate fact from fiction and fear mongering, uh, we decided to have our friend Dr. Susie Wiles, who's a microbiologist uh, at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, join us to tell us exactly what is going on. So Susie, welcome to Inquiry. Minds. Thank you very much. Hi, Susie. It's it's great to have you here. So I think the story of the last couple weeks has been just the incredible fear uh, that has been engendered over Ebola. At least that's a story in the United States. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, it's a terrifying disease in many ways. But it seems to that it's being blown out of proportion in terms of the risk uh, that people actually experience if they're in the United States. So what is what is your take on why people are overblowing the risk? So I think Ebola is a bit like the great white shark. Okay. So it's, uh, it is, for infectious diseases, it is the one that everybody is frightened about if you, if you know, you know, what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason everyone's so frightened is because when you get it, you know, you're, there, there is no treatment. I mean, there, there, we now know that there are some experimental treatments, which we can talk about in a minute. But until recently, you know, it was one of these things that, um, 
if you got it, really your chances of dying were very high. So there's no vaccine. And the only thing that you can do for someone with Ebola is give them um, sort of supportive treatment. So, you know, they might need a ventilator, they'll need fluids, things like that. Um, so it's one of those things that it, it is it is really terrifying, but most people will never, ever encounter it. And until this recent outbreak, you know, most people in the world would have never encountered it. You know, there were really only, I think, a few, I mean, few thousand cases total uh, in the whole time since we've known this, this virus existed. So, you know, about 50 years. Um, and, and it really is only this recent outbreak that has really properly brought it into everybody's minds. And then the idea being that, you know, if, if you, uh, if you get it, you could, you know, nine out of 10 people could be dead. That's, that is a terrifying thing. But, um, there are other things that we should be more terrified of. Got it. I mean, yeah, when you think about this guy in Texas, his name is Thomas Eric Duncan. He just died, um, of Ebola. And, you know, there's all this, you know, controversy about why the hospital didn't admit him sooner. Uh, but the CDC is in the U.S. has expressed total confidence they can control this. And I guess it's the reason. The reason is that, you know, they have a lot of time where they can identify everybody he contacted. Uh, and even if those people got infected, there's a lot of time before they can infect anyone else. So they can get ahead of the disease. It seems like that's... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so in countries like the U.S. and, and most other countries... Uh, where there are only going to be a few index cases and we know who those people are. We know that the people who get infected are ones who have had really close contact with somebody who is infectious. So when you're incubating Ebola, you aren't infectious. You know, he only started to show signs when he arrived in the US. Um, and the, the big failure has been that he wasn't admitted to hospital when he first turned up with symptoms. And it's a hard thing because the, the symptoms of Ebola are very similar to lots of other um, uh, infections, uh, which are perfectly treatable and won't kill you. But the fact that he had travel history uh, to West Africa um, and that he wasn't admitted at first, something there has failed. So whether that was his failing and he didn't reveal that he had been an Ebola contact or whether that was them not asking or uh, or just not thinking it was relevant, that has to be picked up. But from now, you know, the the um, places like the U.S. are really good at doing contact tracing, so they will have identified everyone that he, the, you know, that came into contact with him. And now it's a sort of 21 days to find out if anybody else comes up with with um, symptoms. And it really is only close contact with somebody who has these symptoms, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, um, bleeding, that kind of thing. Those are the people who are at risk. So I understand the argument that way more people will die this year in the U.S. of the flu than have ever died of Ebola anywhere at any time that we know of. So in terms of numbers, obviously, the flu, for example, is a way bigger threat. But there's also this very high mortality rate that you mentioned that worries me as, you know, a healthy person who had her flu vaccine. The chances of my dying from the flu, I think, are pretty small. Um, but if I get Ebola, the chances of my dying for, from it are very high. So what are the chances that the Ebola virus will develop a way um, in which it can be communicable more easily? Like, like, you know, what if it becomes airborne? Yes. Okay, so this is the thing on everybody's mind, I guess. Um, the point about the mutation is that the more cases there are and the longer it's in the human population in this particular outbreak, the more chance there is of it mutating. So it is a possibility, but it is 
it is still remote. The thing about mutations, though, is that they often um, they come at a cost. So for us to become airborne, it means it needs to be a lung infection, which it isn't at the moment. So there would need to be changes around how the infection actually progressed and, and that it became, you know, it came in the lungs and then it was sort of, uh, it, it then was a, um, in droplets that people are coughing out, which it isn't at the moment. What then often happens, though, is that the the, um, the virus may well become uh, less deadly. So it is it is it is mutated in a way that is um, it has had to compensate for that mutation in other ways. Does that make sense? So what often happens with these when they become airborne or they ch change in some way is they become less dangerous, right? They may become more infectious but less deadly. But people are saying that this is a low risk because it would be such a deep change to the nature of this organism, right? I mean, it... yeah, yeah. So it is currently not a lung infection, and it would yeah. need to change into a lung infection. And there are all sorts of things that need to change in the virus for that to happen. So, so I guess the reason that this this is a big story and that people are worried that it's a possibility is that there was some research done a few years ago that showed that pigs can carry this virus in their, uh, basically in their nasal passages and can, uh, or in their throats and can um, aerosolize it. So it's then present in uh, in particles that can then be breathed in by others or can access mucous membranes in the mouth and stuff like that. And so they then get, um, so they did this with uh, pigs in contact with monkeys and they showed that the monkeys didn't have to have uh um, close contact, they didn't have to touch the pigs in order for them to get infected. The pigs didn't show any signs of infection. They were not sick, but they were they were uh, pr producing virus in their um, like in their uh, basically in their aerosol secretions. Um, it was still never proven though that that it wasn't just the monkeys coming into contact with those uh, droplets, right? This is and this is quite different from um, what we would really think of as an airborne virus that would be able to survive in the air and travel distances. This was still very close contact. Those monkeys were in the same uh, environment as the pigs. They were basically just housed so that they couldn't touch the pigs, but they were in the same cage, essentially. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. the pigs carried it and could give it in aerosolized droplets, but the pigs weren't sick. So that is that is why there is a suggestion that... that um, this could happen in humans, but it has never happened before. Mm -hmm. Basically, if in the US, if you have not had contact with somebody who has Ebola and is vomiting, has diarrhea, or is bleeding, then you do not have Ebola. You have not been exposed to Ebola. So the whole, um, you know, or been exposed to their secretions where they were in hospital. You know, if you haven't had that contact, then you will not catch it. And the fact that I mean, this will be, this will be really quickly brought under control. It's just a case of making sure that people who travel from countries that have it declare where they've been, um, declare that they have had contact with patients, uh, and then let the CDC and health officials do their thing and isolate people because there is there is plenty of room in the U.S. and in hospitals to isolate people and put them in quarantine, and then those people who are in quarantine need to stay in quarantine, right? They they mustn't basically run away uh, thinking, oh, it's not me, I haven't been exposed. Um, so everyone needs to be honest uh, and needs to not be in denial if they have had contact with someone. They need to admit it and then be in quarantine because the safest place for, for somebody who has been in Ebola contact 
is for the medical, um, you know, medical people to know it so that if you start to show symptoms, they can immediately start to help you by giving you fluids and all of that kind of support that's needed. And the, the quicker you get fluids and support, the more likely you are to survive. I, that does lead to one last question, I guess, um, for me anyway. Indre might have another question too, but you know, you said it's important that people not be in denial. Uh, isn't it reasonable to think that some people who have a disease that might very well kill them would be in denial? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the problem. This this is actually what happens is that yeah. people just go, oh, it's not me. Uh, I what I've got is not Ebola. It's just the flu. Um, and you're better off being honest and saying, actually, do you know what? I have had contact with someone. I have been traveling there. I may I might have lied on my form, but it's more important. You know, it's it's just it's the difference between the greater good versus yourself. And you know, you need to be thinking, okay, so actually. I did lie and I did travel when I shouldn't have done and I have had contact with people I haven't told anyone about um, and that it's it's better for you and for others around you that you admit it and you get the help that's needed. And even if it turns out not to be Ebola, well, then that's great, <laughs> you know, but if you're putting more people at risk by denying it and carrying on. I mean, it, in Nigeria, they dodged a bullet because there was a um, apparently a diplomat who was one of the contacts of uh, the um, Liberian-American who got it and traveled to Nigeria. He evaded quarantine and moved to Port Harcourt, um, where he was then treated by a doctor in secret. The doctor died, and he then, and before he died, he carried on treating patients. So that one diplomat evading quarantine ended up with a whole other set of cases in a city that it wasn't even there in the first place, you know, because people basically lie and are in denial. And, and that's the kind of fact of human nature that, that we need to overcome in order to bring these things under control. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're really talking about policy, too. And of course, you know, we've tried to make the argument on this show over and over and over again that getting vaccines is not just for you, but it's for herd immunity. I mean, that's why the anti-vaccine movement is so nefarious in the U.S. is because, you know, it's not necessarily your kids that you're putting at risk. It's all the other kids who have been vaccinated, but, you know, the vaccines aren't 100 percent effective. Um, so now we're really getting to this issue of of, uh, you know, putting the herd before yourself. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess the the case you can make for Ebola is, you know, you are better off if you have it. You are better off in in care, getting the, you know, the, and the quicker you get treatment, the the more likely you are to survive. Um, but and that you won't spread this terrible disease. I mean, it just, it, oh, I, I, yeah. I just don't understand why people mm. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't admit it and and protect others around them. But I guess I don't understand the anti vaccination crowd either. Well, so I guess the bottom line is that it's not something that most of us in the U.S. or in um, New Zealand need to worry about straight away um, in terms of our own infections. Uh, But we are going to be talking to someone who is on the ground in Sierra Leone next week. Uh, So we'll get an update from that part of the world, too, uh, to figure out, you know, just to understand exactly what's going on there and and what are the conditions under which this disease is, is continuing to spread. So thank you, Susie Wiles, for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. You're very welcome. So if you want to learn more about Susie, you can follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Susie W. And let me spell that for you. It's S-I-O-U-X-S-I-E-W. Or you can go to her lab website, which is superbugslab.org. 
So on a slightly happier note, uh, the big news this week, of course, has been the announcement of the Nobel Prizes, always an exciting time for science. Uh, and this year in particular, I feel personally connected, at least in some distant way, to two of the Nobel Prize winners. So the first one is John O'Keefe. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for medicine for his discovery of play cells. He's sharing it with a couple of other individuals, uh, but he's the one that's closest to my heart because, of course, all through my my psychology um, education, I learned about the seminal discovery that he made, which is that there are actually cells in our brain that fire when we're in a particular space. Uh, so that's it's sort of how we are able to navigate in the world. And people have been uh, sort of suggesting that these are akin to a GPS system in your brain. Um, so I, I think it's a well-deserved Nobel Prize. Uh, he did some of the seminal work finding these place cells. And uh, also, you know, the the um, sort of so the upshot of his work too is that this kind of navigation is the first thing that we often see in patients with Alzheimer's disease they have trouble um, navigating so often one of the first t uh, things that makes uh, their loved ones realize that there's something wrong is that a person gets lost uh, and so the idea is, is that by understanding how this positioning system in the brain works we might be able to catch Alzheimer's disease earlier and be able to find a treatment for it. Uh, good stuff, you know. I yeah. now I know what's going on when I'm in the mall and I like somehow know where the exit is. Yeah, that's right. You've got a bunch of cells that are that are tracking where you are. I have and no what's, idea what's how I you. know that, but. <laughs> I do know it um, somehow. Yeah. And then there's also the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, uh, which was shared by a couple more people. But one of them is William E. Murner. And he is the advisor of a dear friend of mine, Jim Shuck, who's a physicist at Berkeley. Uh, he got the Nobel Prize for looking at nanoparticles by shining lasers on them. So actually being able to see these tiny, tiny, tiny particles. And so it makes me wonder if my friend Jim, uh, you know, a couple decades from now, isn't going to be accepting his own Nobel Prize for the work that he's continuing. So it's pretty exciting when your advisor wins the Nobel. Totally. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I hope he gets a raise. <laughs> so that's my update of the Nobel Prizes. But Chris, you also have some news to share with us. I do. Uh, so how do you say this? Uh, this is going to be my last show. Oh, and don't say that. That's yes. not true. Yeah, this no. is your last show it as is. is. co-host, but that doesn't right. mean we can't have you back as a guest host, right? Uh, that's, I, I think that's true. Yeah, I haven't thought about that, but um, but sure. So it's not it's not that I don't love you or anything. It's that um, I have been hired for another job. Uh, couldn't say no. I'm going to be uh, going to work at the Washington Post. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, writing about science and the environment. That's That's the gist of it, yeah. So where can people find you at the Washington Post? Uh, well, I don't have a I don't have a, U a URL yet. Um, okay. A new a new site is going to be created, um, but I start off at Wonk Blog, which people can Google, uh, and they will they will find me there within a couple of weeks. Well, of course, we're very sad to see you go, um, but the show must go on and yes, will go on. Yes. And so in the next few weeks, we will be having some guest hosts come in as we look for a more permanent uh, co-host. Right. But we also want to thank you for all the work that you've done uh, building this podcast from scratch and making it 
great and uh, for, you know, keeping us on our toes and educated uh, for this last year. And of course, the years before at Point of Inquiry. And I'm, I know that we're going to continue to be informed by your work at The Washington Post. So, you know, our, our warmest congratulations to you on this great new job. And we look forward to having you back, but also to following you in this new endeavor. Thank you. Thank you very much. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Daniel Levitin. Today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. So what's so great about Squarespace? It is simple, super easy, but still has beautiful design options. If you've ever wanted to make a website but felt overwhelmed with how it all works, Squarespace is perfect for you. You can literally drag and drop content on your new site. Plus, there's 24-7 chat and email support, and every site comes with an online store. The plans start at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So for for a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, you can go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. Show your support for Inquiring Minds and start building your site today. So here's something that I've always wondered about. If you're a woman and you go to the drugstore and you want to buy some razors, you can just go and buy them, you know, from the regular aisle. But if you're a guy, you have to, you know, ring a bell and ask someone to unlock, a, you know, this drawer and get you these razors locked away in the store. And I've always wondered why that was. And my husband explained to me that those razors are actually really expensive. And so you must wonder, you know, why do people keep buying these razors if they're so expensive. So this is where Harry's Razors come in. So Harry's Razors is a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by actually making a good shave affordable again. So it only costs 15 bucks for a Harry's Razors set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped right to your door with the possibility of custom engraving to put your own initials onto the razor so that if you're like my husband, you can put your initials on it and that can be a very clear sign that I, the wife, am not allowed to use that particular razor. So, in fact, today, a Harry's shaving set is even less than 15 bucks because we have a special offer for Inquiring Minds listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiringminds, you can save five bucks off your first purchase. Once again, that's harrys.com and the promo code is inquiringminds. And let me just say that they recently sent me a bunch of shave cream, and I have to say, it's pretty nice. Dr. Daniel Levitin, welcome to the Commonwealth Club and to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Indre. Your past two books really focused on music and its effect on our brains and our culture. So what led you to turn your attention now to a different system in the brain or different systems in the brain, that is attention and memory? Well, my training uh, in my doctoral studies was in attention and memory. Uh, I worked with Michael Posner, who's one of the giants in the field of attention, and uh, learned the techniques and the tools to study attention. And when I went to set up my laboratory, uh, I was interested in attentional processes in general. And as a former musician, or I guess a current musician, I was, as you are, I, I wanted to see what I could learn about attention and memory in music. So... Here, with this book and this, the research that goes into it, I'm looking at attention more broadly. Um, but I don't see it as a departure. I see it as a continuing thread of, of an interest in how attention and memory work. Uh, this is your brain on music, really. It, um, 
is an attempt to explain neuroscience to the average person through the window of music. And here with the organized mind, I realize that neuroscientists have learned a whole lot in the last 10 or 15 years about why the brain pays attention to some things and why we forget other things. And most of that information hasn't trickled down to the average person. And it's information that I think all of us can use in our daily lives if only we have access to it. And it seems that you know our lives get busier and busier with every year, of course. And I think this is true of almost any year that you can always say, wow, even now our attention seems to be you know, brought about into so many different areas. Is it true that it, we really have a change now fundamentally in how we allocate attention because of our smartphones and sort of the technology available to us? Well, a couple of things have happened. Um, one is that we've become accustomed to constant stimulation, uh, digital stimulation, if you want to call it that. I mean, we've become accustomed to having information come at us from all sides at all times, and we feel somehow disconnected if we're not um, experiencing all this. And I think it's important to note that uh, there's an addictive quality here. Our ancestors, well, early humans, not all of whom were our ancestors, uh, some of them had uh, novelty detectors in the brain, and they sought out new experiences and new information. And for some of them... uh, They evolved a brain mechanism to give them a little shot of dopamine every time they encountered something new. And this would have been a really adaptive strategy if you were a hunter-gatherer, to seek out an alternative well in case this one runs dry, or to know that if this stand of fruit trees is affected by a blight, you know, you were exploratory, you liked new things, so you found this other stand of fruit trees. Those early humans were more likely to survive long enough to reproduce, those who had this shot of dopamine for newness. Now, every Facebook update that you read, every tweet, every text message stimulates this newness newness detector in you and gives you this shot of dopamine and sets up a kind of dopamine addiction loop where you want more and more. Dopamine, of course, is the feel-good chemical in the brain. And you may uh, have read about a study done um, in the 1950s where rats were given the opportunity to press a bar And the bar press would cause um, stimulation of a structure that released dopamine in the brain. And this was done by Milner and Olds uh, at McGill University. The rats pressed the bar over and over and over again and to the exclusion of anything else. They stopped having sex, they stopped eating, they stopped drinking, and they died of starvation in order to get that dopamine loop. So um, even now, today, uh, it, it really is... Uh, a similar case where we seek that constant stimulation. Uh, You may have heard about a study that came out in April by a a colleague of ours who uh, asked people, they had a choice. They could either just sit in a quiet room and be alone with their own thoughts for a few minutes, or they could receive a mild electric shock. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but alone with their thoughts meant they couldn't have their cell phone, they couldn't have a computer or a a pad of any kind. They just had to be, you know, reflecting on things for three minutes or so. And overwhelmingly, (laughs) people chose the shock. Uh, People of all ages, not just um, kids, you know, who you might think the digital uh, age people, but people all the way up to 70 were in the experiment, and they tended to choose the shock. So I think that's, um, that's part of the story there. 
There also seems to be, though, a rise in attention to things like meditation, especially mindfulness meditation, and at least amongst neuroscientists. And this idea that we actually do need to check out at some point. You know, people talk about having vacations from screens, designating one particular day of the week as a no-screens day, or you know, running away and being away from all of their devices. Um, is there any evidence that this is effective in terms of resetting uh, your attentional networks, or does it just put you into a state of withdrawal such that when you get your smartphone back, that dopamine rush is even more rewarding? Evidence that mindfulness puts you into the reset? Or any, any kind of um, disappearance from the screens and the things that take our attention? Well, so um, there are two primary modes of, uh, of, of the attentional system in the brain. One of them is, uh, you're all familiar with it, it's the, the mode when you're paying attention to something, you're focused and you're undistracted. Uh, it could be from reading, it could be from being at a lecture or writing a report or doing your job, whatever that is. You're focused, you're, you're not distracted. Now this alternates with another attentional mode called the daydreaming mode where you're just staring out the window, you're not really in charge of your thoughts. They meander loosely from one to another. Uh, the two modes alternate. Uh, you've probably had experience uh, with this daydreaming mode you ever read a book and you found that your eyes got ahead of your brain and so you realize, oh, my, I've really been following the words, but I don't know what they mean. I've got to go back. That was the daydreaming mode kicking in. And it's one of the most delicious things about reading is that what's happening there is your mind is trying to consolidate the information and the storyline and relate it to things that um, you've experienced in your life. You might put yourself in the position of the characters that you're reading about. Your brain is making connections among things that it hadn't necessarily made before. That daydreaming mode, what neuroscientists call the default mode network, turns out to be restorative. Uh, it's, it's, it is like hitting the reset button in your brain. And you don't get in that daydreaming mode typically by texting and Facebooking. You get in it by disengaging. And it's, it's um, interesting to note that um, not all creativity, certainly, but... Um, a lot of creativity occurs during this daydreaming mode. It's because you're connecting thoughts that you hadn't connected before and that aren't necessarily linear, that you're able to solve problems. So if you've ever had some problem that you couldn't work out and you give up, and then you're standing in the grocery store and you're looking at all the different kinds of Cheerios and trying to figure out which one to buy, and then the answer comes to you, that was your daydreaming mode working on the problem. It's really interesting to think about that mode as being sort of involved in some of this creative thinking because, of course, it has a sort of defocused sense, right? So just, just as you said, sometimes when you're in a rut, you're thinking about a problem too, too hard, you know, you have to take a walk and do something else in order to figure out, let your brain solve the problem. But in a way, that's like giving someone the advice of multitasking, of doing two things at once. Go do something else. Have um, you had this experience in your own work? in neuroscience all the time <laughs> of course yeah yeah and so it's it's been a it's it's a conundrum i think because on the one hand you it's you don't want to become too distracted by another task such that now you're you're switching between two tasks which we know as neuroscientists is not the most effective way of getting anything done uh, and yet there is something about 
freely freeing up your consciousness or whatever you might call it um, from working, getting fixated on a particular problem when the solution's not coming. Yeah, usually what happens when you're fixated on a problem, and this could be any kind of problem, I, I mean, a math problem, a social problem, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to repair some relationship that's gone off, or it could be a, um, a work problem. Um, you're trying to put things together that you know that are part of your repertoire of solutions, and you're trying them out in your head, and they're not fitting. Uh, and it's this other mode that connects things together that you may never have connected before. It, a dream, it's like in a dream. You know, when you, if, when you wake up in the morning and you try to explain a dream to your loved one, uh, it can be very difficult because the things don't really connect and you find yourself saying, well, and then suddenly I wasn't swimming, I was on top of a ladder and I don't know how I got there, but... <laughs> So there's something else that happens during the day that seems to take away from our productivity. And this is what you call in your book decision overload, um, or what sometimes I think of as decision fatigue, in the sense that you know throughout our day we make all kinds of little decisions, and then when it's time for us to make the big decisions, we're simply too tired. So what is it about our current state now that, that you know, makes us have more problems with decision overload? Is there something fundamentally changed about our culture, um, or is there something else? Well, we're asked to make more decisions than ever before, and we're asked to do more than ever before. We're doing more at work. We're doing more at home. We can come back and talk about shadow work and things like that. But uh, to, to focus in on this uh, issue, um, a lot of the, um, the artifacts of digital life require that we make decisions. Do I look at this email or not? Do, now that I've looked at it, do I respond to it? Do I file it? Do I deal with it now? Do I deal with it later? The problem is that um, to the brain, uh, each decision is almost equally depleting, whether it's a trivial, tiny decision or a major decision. So all these little decisions that we're making rapidly throughout the day deplete neural resources. Which resources in particular? Well, neurons are living cells with a metabolism. And they need glucose in order to function. Glucose is the fuel of the brain, just like gasoline is the fuel of your car. Each time you make a decision, even a tiny little one, like whether to drink from this glass or this glass, or use a red pen or a blue pen, uh, you're depleting a little bit of glucose. Um, and that's, you're competing effectively for limited neural resources with really important decisions, like um, should I put my savings into the stock market or into bonds? Uh, do I have enough to retire? Uh, is it time to put um, uh, is it time to put the, our aged pet uh, to sleep? These are very important decisions, and uh, we we have to realize that those take up the, as the, the little decisions take up as many neural resources as the big ones. So the, the solution there is to do the big ones earlier in the morning and save the little ones for the end of the day. You also have a great anecdote in your book about a precocious student of yours who was from a, a former Soviet uh, Union country. Ioana. Uh, yes. So tell us about tell us that, that story. Ioana was the best undergraduate I've ever had out of maybe 10,000 undergraduates. Uh, and she had uh, been raised under Ceausescu in um, Soviet Romania. And she was just... Um, I'm sure you've had students like this... Uh, she was the ideal student because she was really a scholar, even though she was only 18 years old. Whenever there was some problem or some concept, she learned everything she could about it from every possible angle. She was like a dog with a bone. She would not let go. Uh, and 
uh, great intellect, and we ended up writing some, some good papers together in the lab. But I remember uh, the first week of school when she had just arrived, she, uh, and I had and, and met her in my introductory class. I was at the bookstore buying some pens, and I found her in the aisle. And like most university bookstores, there was a complete aisle about as wide as this room that was just pens. <laughs> and she was completely flummoxed. She said, I don't know... I mean, I don't know which pen to buy. Which pen do I buy for biology? Which one for <laughs> neuroscience? And which one for my English class? And she says, in Romania, we only had two pens. And often there was a shortage. No pens. <laughs> you know, she was, she was you know, completely confounded by the choice. And it reminds me of what happens to all of us every day in the supermarket uh, with, with information overload. Um, the average supermarket, I've got a... I've got a, a a passage in the book that talks about this, an average-sized supermarket has 40,000 unique items. But the average shopper gets 85% of their needs met in just 150 items, right? So that means as you're going up and down the aisle, you've got to ignore almost 39,900 items (laughs) in order to get the ones you want. Each one that you're ignoring, you know, there's a little bit of glucose being um, sacrificed, <laughs> saying, nope, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that, <laughs> don't look here, nothing to look at over here. So uh, decision fatigue is very real, and, and it's, it's partly because there's so much information coming at us and partly because of so many decisions. I mean, just to throw out some numbers on how much information, Americans took in five times as much information in 2011 as we did in 1986. Five times as much information. That's the equivalent of reading 174 newspapers from cover to cover every day. Uh, In leisure time alone, not counting what you do at work, the average American takes in 34 gigabytes of data. We've created a world that now has 300 exabytes of human-made information. And if you don't know what an exabyte is, don't feel bad. I didn't either. I had to look it up. Uh, it's a new word they had to invent because the number is so big. It's a 300 followed by 18 zeros. If each um, of those pieces of information was written on an index card, a little 3 by 5 card, uh, well, let me put it this way. If just your share of the information, that 300 exabytes, one person's share was written on 3 by 5 cards, they'd cover all of Massachusetts and Connecticut combined. And if you think that, well, all right, I can't keep up with all the information because of overload, at least I can keep up with what's happening on YouTube, (laughs) you should know that every hour, 6,000 new hours of video are uploaded to YouTube. So every hour of YouTube video you watch, you're falling 5,999 hours behind. It's one of the changes that we're starting to see now is that it's not so much that we need to learn to focus our attention, but we need to get better at ignoring the things that distract us. Um, are those two things different in your mind, and how do we accomplish one or the other? That's an interesting question. I don't think as a field, uh, as cognitive neuroscientists, we know whether focus and ignoring are two different processes or two parts of the same process. Uh, What's your reading of the literature on that? 
Well, I think, I think you're right in that we don't have a great set of theories that distinguishes the two, but certainly there's some evidence that, say, as you get older, part of your problem is not sitting down and paying attention to something, but rather ignoring the things that are irrelevant. Right, which, of course, is the problem with people on the autism spectrum, that uh, people with autism spectrum disorders have trouble ignoring things. I think, I think of them, uh, I mean, I think a working understanding is that when you focus on something, you're naturally um, excluding other things. Of course, we have a vigilance mode or a, an attentional uh, mode that's constantly scanning the environment in the background for something relevant. And the evolutionary advantage of this should be obvious. If you're in conversation around the campfire 10,000 years ago and you hear a tiger crouching through the leaves, you know, slowly stepping through the leaves, you have to perk up and think that this might be a danger or otherwise your lunch. Uh, and, and we have these vigilance modes uh, working. You've ever, if you've ever been in a, a party, a crowded party, talking to somebody next to you, all of a sudden you hear your name spoken from the other side of the room. How did that happen? You can't really tell me what somebody said right before they said your name, but you heard your name. Well, it suggests that there's some kind of attentional process scanning the environment and letting some things through and, and ignoring others after it's done some kind of rudimentary analysis of them. What do you think about multitasking? Is it something that we can learn to do well, um, or is it a pitfall that we should just avoid? So the interesting thing about multitaskers is they think that they're doing all these things at once, and they're doing them especially well, and it turns out that it's just an illusion. It's a cognitive illusion. Multitasking does not exist. Um, There's now a body of evidence, uh, a lot of it from Earl Miller at MIT, who's shown that the brain just doesn't work that way. You're not actually doing four or five things at once. Rather, the brain is shifting rapidly from one thing to another. Uh, One second here, two seconds there, one second back again, two seconds here. Uh, What ends up happening is you're fractionating your attention into little bits as you cycle around these different things. Um, And in the process, uh, in addition to using up all this glucose, your brain starts to produce cortisol, the stress hormone. And you do not want this. This is something that makes you feel mentally cloudy and and edgy and unhappy. Um, Cortisol has its place in the fight-or-flight response to help you manage getting away from that tiger, crouching tiger. But uh, it doesn't have a place in, the, in, the, in daily life, and many of us have uh, this cortisol release because we're so stressed out. I think the fact that it seems that we're be- doing it so well shouldn't, um, shouldn't carry too much weight. The, the brain is, is great at self-deception. I, I think the two of us as neuroscientists can assure you of that. Uh, in fact, Mike Gazaniga, one of the leaders in our field, has, has said the entire left hemisphere could be called the confabulator. A lot of what it does is make up stories uh, in order to explain things. And the stories aren't, it doesn't care whether they're true or not. I mean, as an example of how we deceive ourselves, uh, I happen to think after I've had three or four scotches, I'm really funny. (laughs) (laughs) But the people around me don't agree. So that brings me to another major discussion in neuroscience, and I want to ask your, your thoughts on this, which is you know, whether or not we actually have free will. So there's this notion that you know, free will is an illusion, that it's our interpreter or our confabulator, as Mike Zanigo would call him, um, that is just telling us that we have that we made a decision because we're rational beings, but in fact that the vast majority of our decisions happen outside of our awareness. So in writing this book, did that question come up for you? 
I'm interested in this question, and uh, Dan Dennett and uh, Mike Kazanaga and my, my uh, mentor, Roger Shepard, have written about this uh, extensively. I guess there are two ways to approach the question. One is from a kind of metaphysical or spiritual uh, standpoint. Uh, do you feel that you have free will? But, of course, I'm here tonight speaking to you not as a metaphysics or um, spiritual uh, in a metaphysics or spiritual or artistic role, but in a scientific role. And as a scientist, I want to see the data. And I just don't think we have any data that uh, weighs on either side of the question compellingly. There is a body of data that's often cited by the no free will people, going back to experiments of Benjamin Lee Bay. Uh, and they say that he measured things like, um, oh, I want you to lift your finger, um, but... Um, watch a clock, and at the, you can lift a finger whenever you want. Uh, tell me when it is you decided to lift your finger, and he's measuring brain activity. And it turns out that uh, the people lift their finger, and then the brain activity that they say was their thought that they wanted to do it comes later. But this could just be measurement error. We're dealing with very crude instruments and not very precise measurements. So I, I don't think there's evidence one way or the other. Um, and so I want to actually turn to music now, which in some ways is the ultimate multitasking skill. So does, in, in your understanding of how musicians are able to do so many seemingly different things at once, and you know, there's so many different brain regions that are involved in making music, um, do you think they are better multitaskers, or is there something else going on? So attention specialists, people in neuroscience who specialize in attention, talk about um, automaticity, things that you learn to do so well that they become automatic processes. What happens is it changes uh, the wiring of your brain when you learn to do something very well, and it changes the structure and function of the brain uh, so that you do these things on autopilot. Uh, we call it, it goes by different names, automaticity, subconscious, overlearned. These are all different ways of describing the same thing. So... Um, think If you th can think back to when you were just learning to read, maybe at the age of seven or so, and you had to sound out words or you learned, to, depending on how you learned, you might have learned to recognize whole words. But now, most of us, as literate adults, you know, there's no struggle. It's automatic. And there are a number of demonstrations, including the famous Stroop test, that show that you can't turn off that system. It's so automatic. You, you've probably noticed this. If you're on a bus or something, you, you really can't help but you know, read something of the, you know, sitting on the person's lap next to you or, or reading the signs. This is a process that's now automatic. Driving a car is automatic, especially a manual transmission. Uh, it, uh, it can be very difficult at first, but once you, you learn all those pieces and you put them together, it becomes automatic. So I think in the case of music, uh, we're not actually multitasking. It looks like we are, but multitasking uh, implies that you're juggling some number of things all at once in your conscious mind. Great musicians who have learned to do what they do, uh, they're not thinking about it anymore consciously. And in fact, part of the evidence that it's become automatic is that if you ask them to start at some arbitrary point or you ask them to talk their way through it, it's a complete train wreck. Uh, they can't do it. It's like trying to explain how to ride a bike while you're riding it. You just can't do it because taking the um, components of the action out of context completely ruin the automatic part of it.
Yeah, in fact, in, in some ways, shining the light of consciousness onto what you're doing can debilitate, can stop you from doing well. Um, so why is that? What, what is it that our consciousness does to us that kind of slows down this automatic memory or, or habit learning system? Well, I think our consciousness is certainly vital for learning. Um, you, you're not going to learn something that you're not consciously attending to. Uh, I mean, I, I would go so far as to say that you probably don't remember things that weren't part of your attention for the most part. That you have to pay attention to something to remember it, and that means being conscious of it. Um, there might be a few odd laboratory exceptions, but in, real, in the real life, uh, for something to get into your memory, you have to have paid attention to it. So, but um, when we talk about motor sequences, like learning to play the piano and put one finger after another, uh, or, or learning the, the melody or the harmony, all these things, um, the most effective music learners are, are applying deliberate attention and thinking about what they're doing. They're not just, their mind isn't somewhere else while they're reading the music for the first time or trying to work out the fingerings for the first time. It's what we call deliberate practice. It's having a mental model of what you're trying to do and try to get your body to conform to that mental model. And the mental model is multidimensional. You have ideas about what it's supposed to sound like. You have ideas about what it's supposed to feel like to put your fingers in these certain positions, whatever instrument you're playing. Uh, and you, you play, and then you, there's this feedback loop where you play and you hear it, and you go, oh, I, I don't really like the way that sounded, so I'm going to modify the pressure here or modify the timing there. This is all very deliberate and very conscious. Um, after many hundreds of hours... Or thousands of hours, you might get to the point where it feels like your fingers are doing it. And I don't know about you, but I've met now uh, thousands of pianists who have told me, I'm so glad that the music is in my fingers now. And I say, yeah, well, I mean, you don't mean that literally, do you? And they say, yes, yes, it's no longer in my brain, it's in my fingers. And then I say, well, let's do an experiment. If I were to scoop your brain out of your head, <laughs> would you still be able to play? And the vast majority of them think they could. <laughs> but as neuroscientists, we can tell you, your fingers don't have the memory. There's strips in the brain that map to the fingers, and they're telling the fingers what to do. That's right. But, but now they're free um, from having to really think about each finger. And that freedom, you know, there was a, a really important study in the music neuroscience literature done by a, a very talented neuroscientist named Charles Lim at Johns Hopkins. Uh, his question was, Let's take one of the most difficult tasks that musicians do, uh, improvising, playing something new you've never played before. And let's make it even more difficult. Let's look at jazz musicians who play over really difficult chord changes they haven't seen. So he put them in a brain scanner, and he asked them to improvise over some chords they hadn't heard before. So they're playing, he's scanning their brain. Now, going into it, I think everybody in the field, myself included, thought, this is so hard. This is, this is the pinnacle of musical ability. That may be in sight reading Rachmaninoff. So uh, I would have thought there'd be all kinds of brain circuits that would be active that aren't normally active, that have to be recruited and that have to come online in order to make this wonderful, complex thing happen. But Lim actually found the opposite. Improvisers had less activity in a critical area of the brain. They had deactivation. A part of their brain shut down. And what part do you think it was? It's the part here in the prefrontal cortex that we call the internal judge. 
the editor, the part that's saying that's no good. They had to shut that down in order to be free. And in order to have that freedom and to be able to shut it down, they had to have practiced for thousands of hours and have this all be automatic. I just also want to ask your opinion about some of these recent studies that have come out of Sweden claiming that they've found the musical gene. Um, I know you've written in the past about the, the idea that music will not be you know, just one gene dependent. So what do you think about uh, this idea that, that musical ability is in large part or any, any part genetic? Well, first, it's important um, that we understand that not to put too much weight on any one study. Uh, that's not how science works. It's, I think to many people who aren't trained in the sciences, they think, oh, a, a great scientist does one great experiment and then the issue is settled. But it doesn't work like that at all. Uh, we, we deal with the weight of evidence, uh, cumulative evidence from dozens or hundreds of studies before we accept something as true because we want to poke at it and see if it really holds up, uh, if it's not just a fluke, if maybe... Uh, anyway, there, there are a number of different issues there. Um, I think on, on logical grounds, I don't think we'll find a single music gene because I don't think music is a single thing. Uh, music manifests itself in a lot of different ways, all, all of which must come from different neural and genetic, we could say neurogenetic, underpinnings. So um, you've got people who are exquisitely good uh, instrumentalists and don't compose. You've got composers who can barely play their own instruments. A good example of that is Irving Berlin, who, who could barely play his own pieces. You know, he wrote White Christmas and God Bless America, he had a special piano because he could only play in the key of C, and, and even at that, he fumbled through. He had to have people come in and, and, write, and play his, his own compositions. Uh, you've got people who are only good at rhythm and nothing else, and we call them drummers. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, uh, but you, you can see you've got people who are arrangers who don't necessarily play an instrument well or compose. You've got uh, music educators. You've got people who are exquisitely sensitive to music but don't necessarily play or compose. Think of disc jockeys, somebody who can program an hour of music that takes you on a musical journey. The people who set uh, music into films to um, you know, encourage you to feel one way about a scene as opposed to another, and, and the music often tilts the balance or really impels you to feel a certain way. There are all these different manifestations of musicality, plus some listeners are exquisitely sensitive to music. We've seen people in the lab who, after they hear a sad song, will say, stay sad for an hour or more. Think about that kind of sensitivity. Uh, and fortunately, after a happy song, they, say, they stay happy for an hour or more. So I think you know, we're talking about clusters of genes. And when we talk about musicianship, which the Swedish study was talking about, not listening and, and these other ancillary aspects, you know, musicianship requires a lot of different things. Uh, to become a musician, you have to um, have great self-confidence uh, and stick-to-itiveness because, let's face it, for the first few years, you sound awful, <laughs> especially on an instrument like the violin. You know, you know, I mean, you don't even get a good tone out of that thing for a good few years, at, at least with the piano. You know, I can play a C-sharp as well as Arthur Rubinstein. It's, you know, I can't do anything else, but, you know, it's, it still sounds like a C-sharp. 
so, but uh, musicians have to have that. They have to be able to think that someday all this practice is going to lead to something. They have to be self-motivated. They have to have a personality trait that allows them to spend many hours alone in a room by themselves when all their friends are out doing other things. Uh, they have to have auditory memory. They're probably uh, genetic components that subserve these individual qualities that I'm laying out for you. Individual, I mean, certainly stick-to-itiveness is a different quality than um, self-confidence or auditory memory. So it just seems illogical that there would be a single musical gene. And the other problem I have with all of these genetic studies is that um, it's hard to disentangle environment from genetics. And the geneticists have techniques for doing it, but, you know, they're... They're not perfect. So uh, suppose I said to you, I think speaking French runs in families, that it's, it's, it's hereditary. It's hereditary because it runs in families. Uh, most people that I know who speak French have children who speak French. <laughs> wow, it must be genetic. Uh, but in fact, you could say the same thing about music. Uh, most musicians have children who are musicians. How do you distinguish genes from the environment? It's very, very tricky. And, of course, music takes a long time to train up, so you have that whole you know, series of environmental influences over time. Not to put too fine a point on it, but certainly the child who expresses an early interest in music at the age of five or so in a non-musical household is not going to be reinforced for the behavior. But that's a, you know, uh, that same five-year-old in the house full of a couple of percussionists, you know, the kid banging on pots with his fist or something, oh, boy, we've got a drummer in the family, you know. Steven Pinker, who's a linguist, has said, suggested that music is auditory cheesecake. What do you think about this idea that music is just auditory cheesecake? Pinker's argument if, uh, is that um, in hunter-gatherer times, just like we had uh, a, a, a palate, a taste, a proclivity towards newness, we had a proclivity towards wanting to seek out uh, fats and sweets. Uh, because in the quantities in which they were available to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they were so scarce that it was evolutionary adaptive, evolutionarily adaptive to have a, a desire for them. You, you'd never get sick on them because they, there were, just weren't that many. Same with newness. There weren't that many new things happening 10,000 years ago. If you had a, an interest in new things, you weren't going to overload on information 10,000 years ago. Right? I mean, there was the discovery of fire, and then it's 10,000 years before the wheel, and then another 10,000. I mean, you know, things were moving slow. <laughs> so um, Pinker's argument is that now that you can just open up your pantry and have uh, unlimited, virtually unlimited amounts of fats and sweets, you can get sick on them. So the, the, he's answering the kind of rhetorical philosophic question, why do we like cheesecake? It's full of fats and sweets. It leads to obesity and uh, diabetes and all these bad outcomes. And his answer is, well, we don't like cheesecake. We evolved to like fats and sweets in the quantities in which they were available. Uh, and cheesecake exploits those circuits. And he similarly says we evolved language and that music exploits similar circuits. Language has a melody to it if I'm asking a question or if I'm making a statement. There's a melody there. And I might say words slowly, or I might increase the rhythm and say them very quickly. Uh, musical qualities and language qualities are similar, and he says music came later. It was an evolutionary accident that exploits the circuits, like cheesecake does. Of course, he didn't say this, but the implication to many 
musicians is that, well, you'll get sick on it like you get sick on cheesecake if you have too much of it. To add insult to injury, when he first unveiled the auditory cheesecake theory, he did it at an annual meeting of the Music Cognition Group. Uh, And he began by saying, I have to admit I don't know anything about what any of you do because I don't read your papers, but here's why you're wasting your time. (laughs) So Pinker and I have discussed this, and we've discussed it with Dennett, who's, uh, Dan Dennett, who's also got uh, an interest in this. I think the three of us agree, and I haven't spoken to Jared about it, but I think the, th- uh, the four of us would agree that really this is unknowable. Uh, until uh, Mr. Peabody brings the Wayback Machine to us and we can actually time travel and see, we, we're not going to know. Um, I think what we, we, I think additionally what we all agree on is that music has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, It's been around as long as anything else that we have evidence for. Indeed, some of the oldest artifacts we find in human burial sites and pre-human burial sites, such as Neanderthal and Australopithecine sites, are musical instruments, bone flutes and things like that. And before humans figured out that they could you know, drill holes or carve holes in bones, certainly there must have been tens of thousands of years where they had a lower tech version of music, like slapping their cheeks Bobby McFerrin style or singing, uh, banging logs together. So music's been around a long time. Uh, Our brains have undoubtedly been changed by having music, and music has changed our brains. And so what we've seen is a kind of co-evolution of music and and brains, and, and music and culture. Every culture that we know of has music and their own particular kind. There's no culture now or any time in the past that ever lacked music. Uh, so it's a human universal, uh, just like languages. Uh, and just as, just as languages manifest themselves in a lot of different ways, so do musics. So I think we all agree on those things. The question about the primacy of music versus language is an interesting one, and as I say, we may never know. Uh, I've become less interested in that question, uh, just because it's unknowable, it's not a testable hypothesis, but I will add an intriguing bit of data that falls on the Jared side and against the Pinker side, the Stephen Pinker side, which is that as far as we know from current technology and current studies, The areas of the brain, the networks of the brain, I should say, I just want to clarify here too, 10 years ago we talked about neural regions. We now think of it more as neural networks, circuits that are distributed throughout the brain rather than particular localized regions. The neural circuits responsible for music appear to be phylogenetically older than the circuits responsible for language. That is, they're in older parts of the brain that evolved earlier. It's, It's... it's not the weight of evidence, it's early preliminary evidence, but it's data. Music. It's the devil's brew. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the elixir of conversation? <laughs> well, our thanks to Daniel Levitin, author of The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. So we've touched on themes of what we heard in this interview before, talking to uh, Maria Konnikova and Barb Oakley. You know, and it to me, it always does come back to something pretty fundamental, which is, you know, so what should you do with yourself then if the modern world is basically, you know, driving your brain nuts? 
what should you what should you do uh, to slow down, turn off, and how are you supposed to succeed at that? I mean, I know I tried to sleep more for a while, and then you know went back to my old ways. I tried to meditate for a while and breathe for you know count your breath, and then went back to my own way. I mean, what is a person supposed to do? It takes an enormous act of will, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that we're still not exactly sure, you know, how all of these different uh, changes in in our lifestyle affect our brains, right? I mean, this is still kind of an open question. Um, the whole notion of how much time you should spend focusing on one thing versus taking a walk and disengaging, you know, we're, we're still not clear on all of those effects from the scientific perspective. But one thing that I think that the piece of advice that, that Dan Levitin gives that I think is really something worth following is to try to externalize as much of your tasks as possible. So instead of trying to, you know, keep your working memory going all the time and trying to have all these things that you have to remember, you know, set reminders on your phone, sort of externalize those tasks so that they don't impose on your decision making and give you decision fatigue throughout the day. Um, and this is where I think this, this notion that we all carry around a smartphone can be very helpful. I mean, use your smartphone wisely um, and use all of those new apps that make your life more efficient. Of course, you can go into the, you know, to the extreme. Um, but I think that that's really some advice that often most of us think of those, you know, playing with a new app or using a new app, that that's actually going to cause us more decision fatigue. Uh, but I think if you're smart about it, it's a way in which your smartphone can ease, uh, ease up the demands on your brain so that you can actually think about things that matter. Got it. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, once again, I want to thank you, Chris, for all the work that you've done on our show. And um, we will continue, if only, to keep it alive uh, with things that you've built. And we very much look forward to having you come back uh, as a guest host. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for all the great work you've done, too. Thanks. And we wish you all the best at The Washington Post. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds, and I want to thank you for joining us. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, future host ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, today's episode was sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio and online store. So for a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your website. And this episode was also sponsored by Harry's Razors. They are a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by at long last making a high quality shaving experience eminently affordable. It only costs 15 bucks for a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream shipped to your door with the possibility of a custom engraving option to put your initials on the razor. And in fact, today, a Harry's shaving set is even less than that because we have a special offer for our listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiringminds, you can save $5 off your first purchase. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, 
Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.